And the only other entity that I'm aware of who could do this other than us privately is the government. So that is also when people ask me, how come that there are all these programs for real estate investors that are not necessarily available for others? Well, because the government has an interest that private people do some of the providing shelter because they're the only other one. It's either private or government. So if we're doing something that otherwise the government would have to do for the population, then shouldn't we get some incentives for that? I think that makes total sense. Welcome, everyone, to the Cassandra Properties podcast, a special holiday edition as we roll along here. Uh, we're joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Axel Meyerhofer. Uh, this is a, a really unique opportunity, folks, to listen in to someone who has uh, quite an amazing journey to share uh, and is renowned. It, it's difficult to, to even uh, get your arms around an introduction. He's a certified performance coach, a master life coach, a keynote speaker, an author, has a very long list of certifications related to learning, facilitation, and project management. Um, Axel, is it okay if we call you Axel? Yeah, totally, go ahead. All right, well, we appreciate you joining us today. Um, one thing we've noticed in this podcast series as, as we, we talk to more and more what I call serial entrepreneurs, there's a strong connection to two things, uh, either the military or sports or both. Uh, in your case, we have a military background. I was wondering if you could give the audience some context of you know, the origins of where you've come from and what you did in your previous life, and then we can walk through some challenges and, and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. So my previous life or where I come from, uh, originally from Germany. And after I finished school, I, I had intended to go to the airlines because my uncle and godfather was an executive at Lufthansa and I got all these little toys and, and airline paper. I mean, that dates how old I am, but at the time they had something like that, um, airline paper. And so I was always fascinated. And my mom, every time there was a contrail in the sky, she said, oh, look, your uncle is up in that plane, even though that was obviously not true. But for me, that kind of like fascinated me. And, and when I got out of the school and I applied to the airlines and I went through the test and, and passed the test, and then they sent me this infamous letter that said, even though you qualified, we have to sadly tell you that we currently not, don't bring in new people uh, because the economy doesn't allow us to you know, train new people and hire new people. But we will let you know when we're ready and so I was like okay what else can I do and I looked at the Navy and the Air Force and, and opportunities like that and ultimately ended up uh, joining the Air Force and literally four years into my Air Force time uh, in, in Germany they let you go all the way from like boot camp and through everything until you finally get to flight training and while I was in Texas uh, in flight training I, my mom got the letter from Lufthansa saying okay we're ready to hire now is he still interested and I had to make the choice, and even to this day, I couldn't say was it right or was it wrong, but I asked him, so because I already have now some experience, I was quite a ways through the program, can I basically just go from there with pretty much a, an assurance or guarantee that you would hire me? And they said, no, no, you're going to start like everybody else, no guarantees and stuff. So I said, well, you know, it took me four years to get to where I am, so I'm going to keep in this career. And so I did. And one thing that happened, ultimately, I finished. I came back to Germany, got my first assignment, got into flying. And I really got fascinated on the technology side. And so I was very fortunate that they allowed me 
to get into test flying. And one of the things that that brought with it was that I came to the US uh, regularly to the companies that made these new types of equipment to learn how they work because you know that's the only place you could learn it. And from that, we basically, my wife and I, we said, you know, it would be nice if there were a way to, to be in the US for more than just three or four weeks at a time. And we looked into it and found out that there was a, an exchange program between the US Air Force and the um, German Air Force where you could literally take somebody else's job. So I became uh, the assistant director of flight operations for a US fighter wing um, in New Mexico. And the guy who had that job became the assistant director of a flight school that I was in charge with in Germany. And originally, that was supposed to be two or three years. And then coming towards the end of that assignment, I was told that there was a new project a few hundred miles away that the German government wanted me to be the program manager, which is, like you mentioned, part of my um, bio is why did I get into program management or project management that came from there. And so I did that for five years. And in aviation, when your body gets more and more worn out, I guess is the best way to put it, it gets harder and harder to qualify for your flight certification. And there comes a point where you're around 40 or so where you can't do it anymore. And in, in my case, the government said, okay, and I always joke, you can fly a desk or you can retire. And at the time, even though I'm at the desk every day now, <laughs> but at the time, I didn't really want to think about flying a desk. So I said, okay, great. I enjoyed my career here. I retire. Then became an executive in a company, got green card and all that kind of stuff. And then in 2005, started my own business. So that's basically, I always call that my first life up to this point where I retired and went into the civilian world. So to tell us a little bit about, I have to ask, the type of planes that you flew, uh, any, you know, any interesting planes, and that, that's, that has to be quite exciting. Yeah, definitely was very exciting. Uh, I definitely kept all the promises that I hoped it would. So it started out uh, after training with a French-made plane called the Alpha Jet. If anybody wants to look that up on Google, it's a cute plane. And the huge benefit of it was that it, for a fighter plane, it was the only one that I knew that regularly could fly at 43,000 feet, which is above where the airliners fly. And it was super fuel efficient, so we did really cool trips with this. And then I um, flew in Germany and did the test flying for a plane called the Tornado, which is a European uh, plane, also known as a GR1, uh, swept wing and stuff like that. And then when I came to the US, I flew F-111s, which most of the American audience may probably know. It's a, a fighter bomber plane that can fly low terrain following, speed the wings, all kinds of different armaments and stuff. So that was very cool. Any near misses ever while you were up in the air? Uh, not really near misses, but uh, like one anecdote, especially because it's the season you might chuckle a little bit about is I once got in trouble with the maintenance guys because they said you brought back a Christmas tree. And what had happened is there was a low flying training program in Canada because they have the, what they call the Canadian Tundra which is like super flat terrain. And they have these little stubby uh, pine trees all around. And we call that the spring pines. Every so often, for whatever reason, one of them grew taller than normal. And we were supposed to not get lower than 100 feet. And it, for the spring, even the spring pines typically don't get above 100 feet. But for some reason, I don't know exactly what I did. 
I must have caught one and was caught right between the fuselage and the back aileron stuck in there like, like a stick. And because it, that plane is a fly-by-wire plane, it just compensated. So I didn't even know it was there until we rolled the plane back, landed, rolled back to the hangar, and, and the maintenance guy said, what's that Christmas tree that you brought home back there? <laughs> you know, and, so that wasn't much appreciated because it damaged the plane, even though I didn't feel it during flying, but it <laughs> was was not something good. I and What they call in the aviation community, um, I became a pedestrian for a week because my <laughs> commander said, okay, you're not going to fly for a week for that one. How, I mean, low flying, but how low were you flying this thing? Well, officially, I, I have to say I never flew below 100 feet, but so there must have been an exceptionally tall tree. Yeah. That is really remarkable. <laughs> and um, it, it must take a very special person to have the fortitude um, to take a, a jet that's going God knows how fast uh, down, of course, not below the 100-foot mark. But that, that's, that's truly remarkable. Um, so you're in the, the, the military. You're pursuing a career. The career has a, a lid for you at that point, I, I assume. Right. Right. And uh, you recognize this lid and you, you decide to move on to a different, um, a different gig in life, a consulting job at a software company. Right. So can you talk, because I think that uh, the events at the software company are, are probably what defined how you move forward. Um, and if you could just talk the audience through your experiences at the software company and what what prompted you? What was that moment or sequence of events that brought you to a place where you said, this is not for me, I, I, want, I want more? Yeah, well, what brought me into it or why I even accepted it was because in, and I really um, applaud the military for that, there's a lot of emphasis on how to turn somebody who has certain skills, like in my case, I would say the whole engineering mindset, the test flying mindset and so forth has a little bit of a scientific uh, analytical kind of skill set. But then you're also, and this is basically in most cases your main job, you are also commanding other people or leading other people or managing other people. And in my last assignment, it was a, a group of up to 800, right? So it's not a small operation. And you don't just flip a switch or, or snap your fingers and you suddenly know how to motivate people. I always prided myself that I never, in my whole 22-year career, never ever had to point to my shoulder and say, look at my rank to know that what I'm saying is what you need to do. It was always because of respect and, and, and credibility. That's at least what I'm telling myself. But I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's true if you were to ask anybody. But to get there... You need to learn how to lead, how to manage, how you motivate, how to communicate, those kind of things. And so it, it brings, for me at least, and I know for many of my, my comrades at the time, we were asking ourselves, is what we learn here only applicable in the military or could it work outside? And so when I got to this point to decide, okay, do you want to fly this or do you retire? And I decided to retire and got this offer in this, into the software company. It was truly, I'm curious if, what I learned, how to lead, to motivate, communicate, if that would work in what we used to at the time call the real world, or you might call it the civilian world. And a lot of the things did work. Uh, but one of the things that I thought would be way different, especially since that software company wasn't particularly big, 
was that I had oftentimes rubbed a little bit against the size of the military and these layers and layers and layers of decision making, you know, and even though I ultimately got to lieutenant colonel level, so you're not having quite that many levels, but when you start out um, much, much lower, it feels like there is this, this massive Christmas tree on top of you, layer after layer after layer of hierarchy. And I was thinking, okay, well, now that I'm an executive in a software company, the only real person in the Christmas tree is the owner and president. So literally, I'm one layer, <laughs> one level below. And it should be much easier to make strategic decisions and strategic plans and all this stuff where normally, unless you're a general, you don't really get to do that very much in the military, at least not on a larger scale. And I got quite disappointed. So this transition that you asked about how to realize I want to do my own thing. I want to prove myself. I want to find a different way or maybe interpret what I learned in my way was what I call the mutiny. <laughs> I literally gave it a name. And what had happened is this particular software company did something that's called SBIR that still exists. It stands for Small Business Innovation and Research Grant. And this is where the government gives companies money when they can show that they have a good idea but not enough investment or money uh, to actually develop the idea and they can successfully make the claim that what comes out of it could be useful for the government. So in this particular case, it was a software solution to be able to schedule flight operations and taking things like weather and progress in training and so forth, those kind of things into account and especially weather. And I know this because I was a, a director in a, in a flight school. It is probably the most tricky thing when you have a cohort of students that you want to progress through a timeline. And one day it's beautiful sky and everybody can go out flying. And the next day it rains and some had flown and successfully completed their session. So they qualified to do the next thing, but the others didn't. And now they can't fly. And now you have shitty weather for a week. In your whole cohort is separating more and more from each other. So that's just in a nutshell what the software was supposed to handle and make suggestions. This was kind of like the really, really, really early AI suggestions yeah. to the scheduling officer. Who should I schedule under which conditions and at what point in their curriculum for which kind of activity? So that's pretty sophisticated. And ultimately, we were able to get it both into the German Air Force and the US Navy. So it wasn't just a um, pie in the sky kind of thing. So the company got this money, but one thing was also clear. If you are consistently dependent on income or money that is provided by the government, you become literally a dependent. Mm -hmm. And a company, even though I was not from an economics background, but my fellow team of managers, we were all clear at some point, we need to go out into the world and actually offer a product that can stand on its own feet that isn't dependent on government uh, subsidies. And so we went to the management team, meaning like the owner and his investors and said, we want to come up with a strategy that allows basically what we're doing right now and developing something that will ultimately uh, create a long-term sustainability. And we invited, we said, we should do it all together. And he said, no, not really for me. You guys do it, take a day or two. I'm fully for it. And then you present what you want to do. We thought, oh, this is cool, right? So we went, we came up with what I still believe is an awesome plan, came back, presented it to the, um, to the owner and founder, as well as his investors at like 5 p.m. in an afternoon. And uh, they came back the next morning at 10 a.m. and said, we want to thank you for all the effort and we think you had some good ideas, but we decided to keep going with what we're doing. And for us, 
basically that's why I call it the mutiny. You, we, I knew my other fellow five managers. We all knew you can't stay here if you don't believe in the in the path that the company is taking. And what's kind of interesting, four out of the five people, actually myself included, founded a business, and we're all still in business. <laughs> so, wow. and I mean, this is the sad part about the story. About four months later, the company was bankrupt. Wow. And it wasn't bankrupt ex exclusively because we all left because we felt we had to. But the writing was on the wall. If you keep just hoping that the government is going to keep giving you money and you never even show that you want to do anything, then even the investors are not going to believe in it. You know? so, yeah. So that was the sad part because it meant 50 people needed to find a new job. But on the other hand, software industry wasn't super hard. So nobody really got unemployed or anything like that. But that was my experience with what I thought would be easier and, and an opportunity to really apply what I had learned. And it was a great lesson and, and it got me to where I am now. So, you know, it's one of the stepping stones. So it's uh, one thing that I think we've all learned through uh, coronavirus is certainly you, you, you don't want to have a, a, such a rigid format if it's possible um in as you're building a business you want to have multiple different supply chains of potential income uh you want to have diversification in who your audience is so when these types of events occur you do have the ability to shift from one part of the market and focus on another shift from perhaps uh some private sector money and 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 look to institutional or shift from institutional and look to the government but when you have just that one linear opportunity uh to earn as you said you do become a dependent um and we're, we're learning now more than ever uh you've got to be flexible and you have to be able to adapt you know this comes at a, a really interesting time for us because we we have begun over the last year uh, our own growth experience and our own journey uh, with business coaching and leadership coaching. So for the audience who, who know me, um, you know, we've had some measure of success in our, our respective businesses here. And you don't recognize that an outside uh, leadership coach or a life coach or a business coach can have such a profound impact on the things you do. Uh, and it's difficult sometimes to speak to an outsider and have them come in and tell you all of the things that you could be doing differently and all of the considerations. Um, I was going to save this for a little bit later, but you referenced it earlier in your discussion. The diamond, the, the diamond formation is uh, something that you talk about in one of your businesses. You've got multiple businesses. I, I believe today we wanted to talk about uh, your real estate side, which is the wealthgrower.com. Right. And we wanted to talk about the expediteyourbusiness.com, uh, two different disciplines, uh, but they do ultimately tie back together. If you could talk a little bit about the, the diamond formation, um, collaboration, team building, cultural sensitivity and globalization and how you've taken that from the military and applied it to what you're doing today. And then I'd love to jump into the wealth grower and then expedite your business and what those models look like and some exciting things you may have on the horizon. Right, yeah, so I mean the diamond formation uh, leadership approach or coaching and mentoring approach comes basically from the 
from the idea for one, in, if you just want to know why is it a diamond formation, is a diamond or meaning four planes in the shape of a diamond basically flying in close proximity to each other is a military or aviation term. The idea is, and this is why I think it is a, a good model for, for this coaching and, and mentoring approach, the idea is really that you have to align yourself and find balance in three dimensions. And many people um, that I know in the industry at least stay with basically two dimensions, to be honest. Right? And, and so, for example, culture and heritage aspects has to do with, I at least in my experience over many decades have seen that a lot of people are much more than they might actually want to admit influenced by how they were brought up, what were the norms, what are the principles that apply to them, and that then ultimately also govern and guide how they behave, how they react, how do they actually think, how do they make a plan, all those kind of things, right? And when you think about um, what does that mean for your actual life is for a coach or for a mentor or for even somebody who just wants to help a friend. You need to recognize that part, right? But then also when you go to the outside and what does it mean to have relationships, for example? The relationship is influenced by where you come from. So let me give you an example that makes that a little more transparent. As somebody who comes from Germany, the fundamental theme I would say, if I would have to, and which is not really advisable, but if I were to generalize the German culture and community with a common theme, is the theme of the skeptic. So when, or you can say the glass is half empty. Germans, when you present any kind of idea, opportunity, anything like that to them, will almost reflexively, almost go, immediately to what could go wrong, what could be missing, what could, be, what could I be skeptical and critical about? And that becomes potentially a mountain of obstacles that in your mind you can recognize as so insurmountable that you wouldn't even take the first step. Hmm. Whereas if I had to summarize at least in many ways, and this last year is probably not really representative anymore. But when I first came to the United States, I always said, I really admire that when there is an opportunity, people have this inner core from the inside out optimism. What do we need to do? What can we do to make it happen? Yes, there might be things in the way, but we want to look at what could we do to make it happen? Is it a vision or an idea that could actually become reality? And how can we innovate? And how can we get help? And what, right? Everything is basically the glasses are full. And if we do the right thing, then it will be a home run. And that difference in attitude makes some people, even under the most amazing circumstances, take action. Whereas Germans would say, let me find if there's another thing that I can bring up and another thing I can bring up and another thing. And ultimately, you could come to the conclusion to say, well, you're focusing so much on what could go wrong that you never even ever take the first step, right? And so that's what I mean by balancing when you say cultural heritage, what kind of relationships, if your relationships are always drawn from what does the other person do wrong and not what does the other person bring to the table, then you already have this kind of critical, this kind of almost like a little bit friction or I say it's like sand in the gearbox kind of situation. Instead of like when people ask me, how do you, or did you do this in the military? And I said, people 
there is this term, and I'm, I'm sure this is still being used uh, many places, about you've got to earn somebody's trust. Yeah. And I've always said, you don't need to earn my trust. You just have to prove me wrong or not. If you never prove me wrong that I trusted James, I trust you that you are a great guy, that you know your stuff in, in properties and investing in properties and in coaching. That's what you taught me and I trust you. And as long as you prove what you're telling me is true, we are awesome. If I say you have to prove it to me, then you have to climb that mountain. Right. Right. So that's what Diamond Formation, Sheep, uh, Formation Leadership was supposed to put in something um, visual because I'm a visual person. And I always said to people when I did like um, presentations or speeches or stuff like that, to have an idea on how this would look like in reality. And I know this in 2020, we haven't practiced this very much, right? But imagine you go down an interstate and you had a buddy who also goes down an interstate with you and you had three lanes and you pick any random car that is in the middle lane. And then you drive up with moderating your speed, both you and your buddy, so that you draw a line between your right side mirror and the other person's right side mirror, and you want to maintain exactly that position. Why are you going 60, 70, 75, however fast you allow <laughs> to go at interstates in your area? And the other person does that too. Now, that's not a diamond yet, but it's at least three. Mm -hmm. And now, when you have that, imagine that, that you're keeping this position, right? They're, they're accelerating, they're decelerating when a truck comes up and stuff. Now, imagine somebody takes away the road. And you have to do this in three dimensions. That's why it's hard to have this really working well, sure. this balancing act. That's why I also like the image of a scale where you have basically four little parts of the scale and each one of those parts plays its role. And if you don't balance them, then both the relationship, your ability to lead, your ability to communicate, your ability to mo uh, motivate, goes down. Now, that's why it's called diamond formation leadership. It's not just being in a state, because momentarily you can maybe do it, but when you want to do it day in and day out, so that people see you as a role model consistently doing the right thing, then all these things to maintain and balance is really hard. That's why I'm also saying when people complain, I don't see the leader doing much. Well, he's doing that balancing act, and that's very hard to do. Try it yourself, and you will see it's hard. It, it certainly is. Um, so how did you make the leap from what seems to be a very focused, very rigid, very protocol-based um, upbringing uh, and into your initial phase of your career? And uh, you, you then go out, you have your experience in a software company. You see that there's too much of a linear approach uh, and you want to try something different, you want to try something out of the box. How does the leap get made to mentorship and life coaching? And what, were there influences? Uh, John Maxwell is one for me. Were, were there um, influences when you were younger? Or how does that exactly happen? Well, one of the things that happened to me is, and, and I don't know if that was a fallacy or if it's really the truth, even to this day, I can't really tell if it's the truth or not. But when I came to the end of my military career, and even though I had gotten a bachelor's degree and a whole long list of all kinds of other accolades from flying and what have you, 
one thing that I didn't really have and that people have told me that I would need to have, and, and I remember pretty vividly um, that some people said, you're so lucky to get an executive position without having already made a graduate degree, so you better get that done. Um, so for me, it was in a way a little backwards. It also wasn't really that much of an appeal when you're in your 40s to try to go to school and get a graduate degree, right? Um, but what actually happened in reality is I believe that whether it's right or wrong, I might question by now. But so I went for a master's degree in organizational management and in the process uh, got introduced to a guy named John Cotter, who is a really change management expert. He wrote the book Leading Change for your audience. I always say, don't read that. That's way too boring. Read the alternative to it. It's called Our Iceberg is Melting which is putting the whole thing in a fable and a story that is much nicer. And then there's a little other tip in this context because the story is about a colony of penguins. You wonder in the background, go to YouTube and play the uh, soundtrack for Happy Feet. <laughs> so that puts you in the right mindset and then you read, oh, iceberg is melting. But what it basically does, John Cotter develop, developed an eight step process that he had basically taken a lot of organizations through when they went or wanted to go through change. And that for me was really um, formative, I would call it. Now, the other part that was formative about it is because I drank the Kool-Aid of the graduate degree, the dean of the university said, you are so much into that, you're the perfect candidate, you're just starting a PhD program, you should be in one of our first cohorts. So I was in cohort four, which cost me another bunch of years to get the PhD, but it also really surrounded me with people who wanted to take leadership both practically and in a theoretical way to a deeper level. And from that came the urge that I always had because I was a flight instructor, I was a project manager and stuff like that, to help other people comprehend something, either in a practical sense or in a conceptual sense. And having these tools and having like anybody who does a graduate degree or PhD, the one thing that you're basically forced to do is read a ton of books and articles and all that kind of stuff. You get a lot of exposure to the theories and, and the different ways of looking at stuff. And that actually allowed me to make that transition where I really said, okay, I can see what's necessary here from my perspective. And I can put, and don't forget, I mean, by that time, I had basically 30 years of real life experience to bring to the table. So it also helped me to say, okay, yes, here are these books, here are these eight steps. What does, what does it really mean in reality? Right. What does it really mean when you want to motivate a group of people to change something? Right. And I tried to develop all kinds of analogies and, and, um, and images and stories and so forth to make it tangible, not just the theory, but make it tangible. And right. I use, for example, the analogy of imagine you're at a train station. How, and John Cotter uses the, um, the second step of his eight steps. He says, you need to build a guiding coalition. What that means, a group of people who are really totally in for whatever the change effort is going to be. And he suggests that part of that guiding coalition should be a few so-called naysayers, people who in the community are known to typically not jumping on any new idea right away. So if you have the people who are totally behind it and a few naysayers, and now you imagine a train station where the whole company is at the train station, and this guiding coalition first the real believers get on the train and they say, hey guys, come on, let's get on the train down the road to the change new better vision. 
And a few people might go just because they believe in you or they believe in the idea or the vision. And then a few of your naysayers get on the train. And just because of that, probably 80% of the people suddenly get on the train because they say, if James goes on, who is known to be pretty skeptical, if he is convinced, I can give up the fear that it could go wrong and go with him because it's the believers plus James and maybe a few other people. Now I get on the train. And I always say the remaining 20%, and this is where the metaphors kind of switch a little bit, um, the remaining 20% of people, you really have to ask yourself, should they be in our company? Which is a Jack Welch thing. I don't know if you heard about his saying when he first became the CEO of, um, of uh, GE. He said, you have 20% of people who make 80% of the money and the profits and so forth. Yeah. Then you have another 40 to 60% of people who are worth developing because they have the potential. And then you have 20 to 40% of people who shouldn't be here especially if we want to be number one or number two in our category or industry, right? But I agree that the people who don't believe in the believers and don't believe into the skeptics, you probably have a hard time to ever get them to come on board. And there, are, there is a little bit in this story, just to finish it, when this train starts moving, and don't think of a modern train, think of the train in the Western movies, right? There are, out of the 20%, there are a few who are doubters and doubters and doubters until they see the train move and then they run <laughs> down the platform and jump on that little thing that you always see in the Western movies where you have that little railing thing there. Yeah. They still worth kind of pulling along and pulling them in and, and letting them be on the train. And the rest is probably the community that you really want to identify as not really suitable for the change effort that you're in. Or you can go to Jim Collins, book uh, Good to Great, where, where he basically talks about the bus and the bus is going, the business is going, and not every seat on the bus is occupied when you're little, when you're getting mid-sized to a 15-seater, and then you get to the Greyhound bus and you ask yourself, okay, is every person still in the right seat? A good example is the accountant. And you start out with one bookkeeper, then you maybe that person gets a little education and becomes a CPA, but will they be really the right accountant for a thousand people company? Possibly not. That's why buses have bus stops. So you can let people off and put other people on, right? So that's kind of my way, whether you use this uh, diamond formation leadership from aviation or the situation in the rail station or the bus in John Cotter that has people adding and subtracting as the company grows and goes from a, from a two-seater or four-seater to a 15-seater to a Greyhound bus. So uh, folks in the audience, um what Axel is referring to here is, is the process of change. Um, and the process of change is difficult. We're all going through quite a bit of change uh, in all of our lives. And, and in the business world, <clears throat> the change has been so unbelievable in the last 12 months. Um, there's a way and there's a, a, a practice that you can uh, deploy. There's many different me methodologies. Uh, we're, we're currently subscribing to the 108010 model, which is kind of a hybrid of what Axel is referring to there, uh, where if you get the right buy-in from the right folks, you can effectuate pretty significant change in a company from top down. Uh, it's not a hand-to-hand -hand combat, each individual. Uh, there are certain folks that are your influencers. And if you, if you 
absolutely nail it with your influencers and you deploy a really precise program, they will help matriculate this, this change and this program through your entire company. Uh, and, and now more than ever, that's so relevant is it seems like we're adapting every day. You know, this is now the fourth major event uh, for us, at least up here in the Northeast that we've had to endure in our professional careers from 9-11 uh, through the 08 crash, super, superstorm Sandy, and uh, of course now the pandemic. So these once-in-a-life events have become part of just your, you know, you need tools in the toolbox to adapt to these things. Uh, it's why I was drawn to some of your programs, and I wanted to move on if we could now and talk a little bit about the wealthgrower.com, uh, the opening uh statement when when you go on the website is something to the effect of uh i'll teach you how to start from from scratch and and become a passive millionaire it's like it's right there and and uh it, it caught me as wow uh you know we call it mailbox money building a portfolio of, of mailbox money where right. uh, if you wanted to take a month or two months or whatever it may be to focus on a different venture or take a trip the mailbox money is there every month it's it's reliable and uh, even that has its its issues with diversification, as we learned uh, through this pandemic. But could you talk a little bit about uh, wealthgrower.com and what your programs offer and who, who's the candidate? Who in my audience can subscribe and what can they expect? Right. Yeah. So the motivation for Idea Wealth Grower is basically been that um, I had been investing in, in real estate to build basically passive income as a means to retirement. Um, and then when I did a very substantial 1031 exchange and told a few friends of mine about it, they said, wow, that, that's so interesting. I didn't even know that exists. You should put this out there. To answer your question more directly, what people can expect is that they learn if they, for example, wanted to become a client and mentored by me uh, and my team. What we teach first is become really aware of your true financial situation or what I call your personal balance sheet. What comes in, what goes out, are you paying yourself first, the you know, richest man in Babylon idea um, and so forth. So let's get that settled. And then in the context of the initial strat strategy session to discuss is residential real estate investing the predominant approach that you are interested to take? Or do you see yourself more in multifamily or syndication or a million other things you could do? But let's just assume for a second and you say, yeah, this totally makes sense. And, and I'm actually portraying it just so you know, not so much, even though we ultimately get there, as how do I actually identify the property and finance it and all that stuff. But first to establish the mindset of we are in the business of providing a high quality service for a fundamental need, according to Maslow, which you find on my website as well, as far as what are fundamental needs. The first lowest level of fundamental needs all human beings have is safety. Mm -hmm. And then the sec second next level up is food and shelter. And we want to be in the business of providing high quality shelter to our tenants. And the only other entity that I'm aware of who could do this other than us privately is the government. So that is also when people ask me, how come that there are all these programs for real estate investors that are not necessarily available for others? 
but because the government has an interest that private people do some of the chore of providing shelter because they're the only other one. It's either private or government. There is no alternative to it. Right? So if we're doing something that otherwise the government would have to do for the population, then shouldn't we get some incentives for that? I think that makes total sense. I, I, I know I'm not the only one, but you know that's, that's for me important. And so we clarify that and then we literally go through and the reason I call it ideal wealth grower is because ideal is not just because I believe in residential real estate, but also because ideal is an abbreviation. So the I stands for income. What kind of income are we looking for and what kind of income do we already have? Then the D stands for depreciation. You know you have the 27 and a half years currently depreciation for the investment assets that you have that impact your, your taxes. The E stands for equity, the A stands for appreciation, and the L stands for leverage, which I'm especially in this low interest rate environment preach. You want to get 80% of your investment paid for by the bank and then collect 100% of the benefit. I, I've never understood why, why that is so hard, right? I, maybe it's not, it's only for me. That's also when people say, well, but I heard real estate investing only really gets three or 4% uh, year over year. Said, yeah, you heard something, that is true. You can debate whether it's three, four, five or 6%. And it is the A in idea, but I call it the cherry on the icing of the cake. What's much more interesting is you have a property for $100,000 that after everything is paid, gives you $250 of positive cash flow, which is in this day and age at these interest rates, not outrageous or anything like that. 200 to 250, that's between 2,400 and $3,000 a year. And you put 20,000 yourself in, that's 15%. Forget about the appreciation. If you add those 3%, let's say it's only 3%, you're at 80. Then you add maybe half a percent for depreciation, you're at 18.5. So tell me, how bad is it? If I came to you and say, hey, how about I get you something that pays you 18.5% year after year after year after year after you can infinity. And it's inflation adjusted. So if inflation goes up, it goes up with it. So you so, don't even have to change anything. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir in a sense, but that is basically what we're doing. That's how we try to make people understand. And then ultimately, let me just get that one last part out we identify something or differentiate between economic independence and financial independence. And economic independence in that context is how much money do I need in my preferred location, which may not necessarily be where you live right now, to cover all my expenses every month. Right? You may, like I live right now in a location where I probably would have to get six or 7,000 a month, but if I decide I wanna live in North Carolina or in Florida, it would be good enough to do 4,000 or three and a half or whatever. Yeah. So whatever that number is, and now let's convert that back to our 250 per property. Right? So if I say, okay, 250 per property and I need 3,000, then that's somewhere between 12 and 13 properties. Or it could be three or four, four plexes. Right? But it's still within that frame of, of residential real estate investing. And so then it becomes a matter of how do I mentor you and help you and coach you to get to this point where you have these properties, the money comes in, and it may take eight to 12 years is what I always say. Don't expect it to happen faster. If it does, be happy. And in eight to 12 years to answer the second part of your question, who is the audience? Ideally, I would say start when you got out of college, you got a job that makes you more money than you need and get going on it. Start at least with the accumulation phase. 
And that would then allow you to most likely somewhere around between 40 and 45 to be done. So I, I think um, I want to go back and touch on a few things here. So for the, for the audience, um, Axel talked about the, uh, in kind of a glib way, like uh, interest rates are so low, I, I don't understand how people have a difficult time with that. And I think that's where the secret sauce for what you're doing um, comes together. So as a society, uh, we hear so much about the banks and the difficulties and foreclosures and folks not being responsible with debt. And what people don't recognize is we're in a moment in time where when I started in the business, I'm only 45 years old. My first deal, the interest rate was 11 and a half or 11 and three quarters of a percent. And we, we were proud that the deal got done at 11 and three quarters of a percent because that was a good rate. So uh, historically, we, this is a moment in time, folks. Th this is as close to free money as I think we will ever see. And what I think the, the benefit that can be derived here is even in my audience, I have a lot of successful real estate investors, but they, they've put lids on their careers uh, subconsciously. I did it. I didn't even recognize that this was a thing. The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, it's a Maxwell book that I, I subscribe to and I, I point to quite a bit, talks about uh, these leadership uh, laws and the law of the lid is one of them that was very profound for me. As you're going through life and, and as a, a savvy real estate investor, one of my uh, you know, commitments to my wife was I'm going to work a lot. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to put the time in, uh, but, you know, I'm going to get to a point, and for me, it was when I was 40, I think it was, we won't have a mortgage on our home, right? And there's certain benchmarks that you, you psychologically want to strive for, and, and I did it as someone who knows better. And then you get to 40 and it's like, hey, babe, remember that promise about not having a mortgage? Well, let me explain to you why that's not such a good idea. Uh, considering the marketplace that we're in. So I think that, that as investors um, and, and, and as folks that aspire to invest who are not investors yet, uh, why there is such a profound connection, a deep connection, folks, between life coaching and business coaching and success in real estate is it teaches you to take those barriers away. It teaches you to recognize things that you've imposed on yourself that you don't even know are there. It teaches you to recognize mistakes that you're making in your own company that you don't even see. You know, I'll, I'll share a quick story. Uh, we, we do pro D assessments. We did them for the whole team recently. And for those who don't know, it's, it's basically a, an assessment that you fill out. It takes about an hour and a half to two hours and it gives you insight. It's a really unique, uh, uh, project to endeavor. You can't hide from the pro D. You, you, as you're going through it, you're giving answers and then you're noticing they're asking it multiple different ways. And it really cuts down into uh, your gift. Where is your gift and what is it that you do absolutely better than anyone else? Um, and for me, it, it was entrepreneurial challenge, pro production efficiency, and strategic decisions. So in my company, we've been innovating for a decade now. Uh, in my mind, it was 
there is no end to, to the race. It's just every time we go around the lap, we have to get better and better each time we do it. One of the things that we learned and we talked about was natural appreciation. So Axel, for me, I didn't even know that existed. I didn't even recognize that most people score very high in natural appreciation. Most people need the balance and the stability. They do not appreciate change. They do not appreciate constant innovation. They do not appreciate constant disruption. And that's been a problem for us in the company. There's been so much disruption and so much innovation as it's in my DNA to do so, but also as technology has come in and just disrupted the, the business in such amazing ways. For me, it was, okay, go, go. What, what's tomorrow going to bring? And what, what I came to learn was I had to restructure things. And while I can, at the top, advance us with strategic planning and, and keep an eye on production efficiency and, and jump into that entrepreneurial challenge, I was better served focusing those energies in a consulting division where I was providing that different level to multiple different clients, which I'm very proud and happy to say we have launched very successfully. Uh, we've, we've done some beautiful work for some clients uh, over the last year, year and a half, and it's allowed for there to be a calm that's settled over the company, and it's allowed for us to attract better people, retain better people, promote better people, because I didn't even recognize this existed. So folks, the reason I'm sharing this with you is, uh, you know, as we're, we're a known entity in our local market and people, you know, say all the time, oh, you with your company, it's great. You're here, you're there. There are so many things that we don't even recognize that we're doing within our companies that put a lid on our growth um, I could not recommend getting involved with life coaches and business coaches in, in, I couldn't give it a bigger endorsement for us. It's, it's rejuvenized everything that we do and it's given us an opportunity now uh, to really focus and to put each individual in their gift, which is removing the lids. And it's giving us an opportunity now to explore and to do things in a, a much better way. So uh, that's a very long way of explaining why I think, uh, and I was drawn to your site when I was reviewing it because I'm going through this personal experience. And when you talk about interest rates, people don't recognize and we don't talk about it enough. This won't be here forever, right? There, there will be uh, influences that will, will change the trajectory of the interest rates. It will change the trajectory of inflation. It'll change the trajectory of inventory. Uh, and I, I guarantee you folks, if, if, you're, if you're not acting on this now, you're going to look back and you're gonna go, good, good Lord, did I miss an opportunity there where there's free money available. So if there was ever a time for you to subscribe to someone like Axel's program, this is it. And they teach you how to remove those barriers, identify clearly what your goals are, and then to go out and to achieve them. So, you know, the 1031 exchange that you talked about earlier, these are things we take for granted. These are things that it's, it's as common in our, our day as, as anything, you know, uh, as putting on your pants would be for somebody else. Uh, 
but there's such unbelievable information that you can glean from these programs. And there are such unbelievable opportunities in this country uh, that if you know the tax structures and you know the laws, good Lord, there's a lot of opportunity in between. So does your program focus uh, or does it promote investing geographically in one location where you are? Does it, does it get into the nuts and bolts of who, who the managers would be and, and rent collections and evictions or does it, is it a higher level program? No, we, we do get into this uh, and we're not just investing in one location. The strategy that we're actually suggesting based on the funda fundamental uh, understanding and agreement that we want to invest in residential real estate is what I call the out-of-state turnkey strategy. Now, that doesn't mean that only people who are not in the state where the properties are can invest in them. But it got triggered by the fact that a lot of the people that knew me and because I've pretty much for the vast majority of my life in the United States have always lived somewhere like on the West Coast and a lot of my friends and business partners and people I did business with were somewhere along the coast, which is typically an area where you can't get the performance to really make investment real estate work at least not on the residential level. So now that then brings up the question, okay, if I can't make it work in my area, but I still want to get to a point where I have passive income through residential real estate cash flow, like I said, the, the um, millionaire um, passive income situation, then I need to invest somewhere else. And the problem becomes, if I invest somewhere else, how do I do it and get my property managed? And so the turnkey aspect is, a particular and pretty rare kind of turnkey provider who finds the property, renovates the property, sells it to me as the investor, and is the same entity who manages it. And that provides what I call the virtuous triangle, because you make basically three entities happy. You make the turnkey provider happy because, for one, they get good money for their properly done renovation, but they also make me happy because when they manage it for me, it would be stupid on their behalf not to do the renovation well because in my contract, when I first sign up and purchase the property, it says the first year you pay for everything that could go wrong with this thing. Now, if they do a quality renovation, they don't have to be afraid of that, right? So they can gladly manage and get the full management fee and they get the benefit of selling it to me. So they are happy and I'm happy. And guess who else is happy? The third party in this triangle is the tenant because they sit in a really high quality, well-renovated property that doesn't have maintenance issues. So when we're all happy, we're all chucking along happily. And the thing about it is this, this dependence between if I renovate well, I don't have maintenance costs, so I collect the full uh, property management fee, gives everybody a certain level of assurance. I wanted to just briefly comment on your point about the low interest rates. What I believe is, is underappreciated is that typically we have every reason to believe that there are certain organizations or entities who specialize in stuff. And I would say we can probably all agree that banks specialize in risk management, the same like insurance companies. So if a bank says to me, or my investment property with a turnkey provider, if you're willing to put 20% down, I don't even need to insure the mortgage, let alone the interest rate. That's their assessment of risk. They say, if Axel or James puts 20% down, we're willing to give you the other 80%. No insurance required. 
right? And then you're just following the rules of what's the interest rate, what's the principal, and stuff like that. So the same thing when you say, okay, what are you doing with the money? They do this and don't want insurance if I buy a house. As soon as you say, I want to buy a car, I want to buy something at a store, I want to buy a new gadget or something like that, they say, you put that on your credit card and pay me 15, 18, 20% interest. Right. Why? Because they say, that's a consumer good. That thing is going to be half the value the moment you take it out of the store. But the house, they know almost better than us, or maybe equally well as us, that is a real asset. That will have appreciation. That produces income. That's why they're willing to give us four-fifths of the price. Right? And so that's... Um, how for me, you need to look at the right thing. In the, in the out-of-state um, strategy with turnkey providers, it's the same thing. If the turnkey provider is lowering the risk by doing a good renovation and finding a good tenant so we don't have turnover, then again, all three of us are happy. So wh- where are you, uh, and first of all, I, l- I love that little uh, anecdote about the, the banks, if they're willing to give you four-fifths of the money and absorb that risk. Um, yet we still find people time and time again, um, investing in things like cars and, and these assets that depreciate literally 50% of the value. It's the old adage. The minute you drive your new car off the car lot, if you drove it back down and tried to trade it in, they'll give you 50% of what you paid. No, for. maybe 60 if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so, uh, folks keep that top of mind. There is a moment in time here, where you can really build a sustainable portfolio with an extraordinarily low barrier uh, uh, as far as your interest rate and your carrying costs. So, uh, Axel, where are you sourcing these turnkey operators in different states? Well, like I said, for one, there aren't that many who do all those three things together, that re- uh, find property, renovate it, then sell it, and then manage it. So I have uh, one that I'm working with in the Ohio area. Um, then one in an area west of uh, Chicago, one in um, Alabama, and one who's a little bigger, you may know them, and I don't mind naming them. The other ones I don't name, but if somebody wants to know, you can contact me. But uh, the, the biggest one that is multi-location is called REI Nation, or a lot of people still know them about, uh, as Memphis Invest. Um, they are a great company. I learned a lot from them. Uh, Chris Closure wrote the book, uh, Turnkey Revolution, that taught me pretty much everything about investing in turnkey companies. I tried to invest with him. The problem is that these guys do something that makes sense in one way, but it makes it also harder to invest in that is they have a tendency to slightly over-renovate their properties. And long-term, it makes sense because you have less potential for maintenance issues and capex issues. In the short term, as an investor, the problem is if the property is slightly over-renovated, you may not appraise. And if you don't appraise, then your lender, the banks that we just talked about, are only gonna give you as much money as the appraisal allows. And so when I say I wanna build a portfolio, and we talked earlier about 12, 15, 16 properties, then each one needs to be as efficient as possible. Right, so if, the, if you have to put $10,000 cash in just to cover the difference between the appraised value and, and the asking price, that is basically dead money. Two of those give you another house that appraises properly. Right? So I'm not saying anything wrong about REI Nation, but they have a particular philosophy that um, 
is not always working, you know, and, and it has a little bit to do. They have been so long, so successful in their market. If, if you are in an area that has maybe half a million or three quarters of a million people like in Memphis, and you have 10 companies all doing the same thing, at some point you run out of 60s and 70s property. I mean, it's just a law of nature, so to speak, right? So, but those are basically, and, and I still count them, and I still regularly talk to them because every so often there might be one that works, right? So those are basically um, the locations, and REI Nation is a little different because they are in multiple different cities there in like St. Louis and Dallas and Houston and so forth. You have quite a bit of diversity working with them for the properties that actually work. So uh, believe it or not, we're, we're pushing up against an hour already. There's so much more I wanted to cover, but uh, two more things I wanted to touch on briefly. Uh, as we emerge from coronavirus, where do you see the market as far as um, foreclosures? And I, I believe there's a debt crisis coming on the bank side. Uh, I believe that banks are going to be in a rush to uh, dispose of even performing notes at a discount. Do you do you see a unique opportunity on the horizon? I don't think nearly as much as we saw in the Great Recession. And the reason is partially because there's so little inventory that I don't think there are really a lot of properties that are not really working. I also personally feel that the community of people who are investors in real estate has grown tremendously, not just relatively small operations like yours and mine, but also the hedge fund investors in real estate and, and people like that. So I don't really see a super big number of properties who wouldn't be served anymore or couldn't be rented if the owners can't pay the mortgage they might be able to move out and rent it and cover the mortgage that way. So this situation where people had properties that were way overpriced and the people had nowhere near the income to cover the mortgage and fell behind more and more and more. The, the tricky part that I see, uh, especially in 2021, is going to be how do you resolve if you are in the unlucky situation that you had tenants who lost their job or something like that and didn't pay how do you resolve that situation and this is why some of the rules i'm sure your audience follows them i always preach it you need to build the reserves yeah. right and and you need to this is the other thing that i would really and i teach this to everyone who becomes a mentoring client of ours it's 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 somewhat boring it's somewhat laborious but 2020, if it taught me anything, is if you are willing to read the rules that the government comes out with, it is mind boggling. I mean, the government, I, I sometimes really wonder, and I don't want to get on a political rant, but I wonder who writes these laws. If you really think about it, how is it that they didn't make any difference whether you put your own owner-occupied mortgage on forbearance or an investment property mortgage on forbearance? Yep. Right. So what did I do? I said, okay, if the government says I can do this without any harm, then I do it. Mm -hmm. So that means I get 100% or like 90% of the rent or something like that. And if I'm actually in this, in this super cool situation, if, which I was lucky it didn't happen, but if any of my tenants would have fallen on hard time, I could have literally said, just live there until it gets better. Right. But because I don't have to pay the mortgage. Right. Right for now. And so anybody who knows a little bit, and I'm not claiming to be an economist, would say, what the heck did you do? <laughs> you know? yeah. but, 
you know, so this is one of the important lessons when you say, what do I see? I really want to get people much more involved in what are the rules. And then when you know what the rules are, look at your own situation and say, how can I apply the rules? Not to take advantage of somebody, but to get the maximum benefit out of the rules. Playing within the frame is what I call it. So one of, within the frame. one of the areas that we're having great success in our consulting division is centered directly around the legislative threats, which become yeah. opportunities as right. the legislation continues to pour in. Um, and, and look, we just saw an example where a 5,500 page bill was dropped on, on the desks of the elected officials. And I think it was a pace of 916 pages per hour is what they would have had to read before they had to vote. So many times these nuances are dropping in between the cracks. And like you said, we, we're not here to take advantage, but if we know the rules, we can play the game. Uh, and staying ahead of, of yeah. the legislative changes are, are paramount in this business. You have to know what's coming. You have to know where those opportunities lie uh, because there's, there's millions and millions to be made between those lines. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, that's why I call it playing within the frame, because anybody, when you say, okay, how do you file your taxes? Well, you file them within the rules of the IRS or your state tax uh, legislator. And the same is true for all these other things. We're just living in times, like you just pointed out, rightfully so, where more and more things are basically happening outside of the traditional frame. Yep. Or you could say the frame got bigger, however you want to portray it. And so we, as people who want to actually get to this point of reaching economic independence, where we don't have to exchange time, exchange time for money anymore, need to look at every little thing that can help us on that journey. Right? And, and the, there are more and more of those things. And so that would be my bigger focus is instead of, I don't think so much of foreclosures and, and collapsing of, of banks and stuff like that, even though some of that might happen, but because I'm playing within the government insured space, I'm not really too worried about it. But there are many, many things that have come out and will come out, especially potentially with the new administration. I don't think there's any stop anytime soon. So we need to constantly be on the swivel to see what is coming out and how can we actually put this within our frame and see how we can apply it to our strategy. And, and, and when you do that, you will probably, I see people, when I used to say it takes eight to 12 years, you can do it in six to eight years just because of the rules that come up. Yep. So folks, there's, there's never been a better time to jump into real estate. There's never been a, a better time to look inward and right. subscribe to uh, life coaching and business coaching and mentorship. Um, there is a mindset manual I wanted to just talk about in closing. If you can talk to the audience about how do they find you, what's the best way to get to you? I subscribe to the mindset manual. If you could walk through the audience, just a quick snippet on what that is and how they can find it and how they can find you. Right. Okay. Yeah. So thank you for, for reminding me of that. So you find it by going to idealwealthgrower.com forward slash free. And there is a little box that pops up and it asks you for a coupon code. So if you put James as the coupon code, then it allows you to download it. And then also go to Idea Wealth Grower on YouTube and you find an eight uh, part series of videos that uh, go along. And there are basically two really main portions in the mindset menu. The first part is focusing to get you out of what I call the victim mindset and into a creator mindset. 
don't blame anything in, in, on stuff and you can't do it and this is not, a, not enough money. And, and No, find a way to carve out your path to this economic and ultimately financial independence, to this point of freedom where you no longer have to do something just to make money. So that's the creator mindset. And then the second main part, there's a little part in between that, James, you probably appreciate because it explains the grower mentoring model and how to apply this on a cycle so that yep. you can improve yourself. But then the second main part in the mindset menu is basically with permission, my explanation to why and what do you need to do to make the law of attraction work? Because a lot of people get attached and attracted to this concept of if I put the right vibe, the right motivation, the right energy out into the universe, it makes it much easier to accomplish my goals. And then they might sometimes be and oftentimes be disappointed because it doesn't happen quite that easy. And so in the, in the third part of the mindset menu, there is five additional things that need to come together with you being in a positive and energetic and, and, and properly asking questions mindset to actually make it work. And if you combine the two, you see yourself as a creator and you have basically the formula to make the law of attraction work, then you will build that portfolio, then you will reach that economic independence and you will at some point be able to say, I don't have to do what other people tell you, tell me I do what I want to do because that's my passion. Well, uh, we really appreciate your time today, folks. Dr. Alex Meyerhofer, uh, please check him out. Uh, the websites are very, very informative. The YouTube channel is very informative. I strongly recommend you go out and subscribe to the, the Mindset Manual. Again, it's free. Uh, and and it's, it's time, folks, for us to, to start thinking uh, a little bit differently and to start reprogramming how we approach things. Uh, and again, like I said, there's never been a better time to jump into real estate um, doctor, we really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, James, thanks for giving me the opportunity. It was really fun and I enjoyed it a lot. My pleasure. All right, everyone, uh, appreciate as always. Please keep those comments coming. We're really having a good time with this and we hope you, you derive as much value out of this episode and the mindset manual as I have. Uh, thanks everyone. And as always, stay safe.